Remain standing for our sermon text from Ephesians 4. Listen carefully to the Word of God. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to help us to be a faithful body of Christ. That we might fulfill what this passage calls us to do. To do our part in building up this body. And so as we consider your word today, as we consider the doctrine of your church today... Give us a biblical vision for what it means to be a congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, be seated, please. It might be a little misleading for you to see sermon text next to what I just read. Today's really more of a topical sermon, and... I'm not going to actually talk much about this passage, which is why I wanted to read it. I kind of want to get a lot of passages in front of us today, including this one, this foundational passage for what it, what it means to be the church, to live out our calling as Christians knit together into one body, a local body of Christ. But, but today I'm going to take a, a small slice of what that means. We're just going to consider one one corner of the, the doctrine of the church, a small part of it. And during the next year or two, maybe longer, I, I may continue this practice for the remainder of my career, but at least for the next year or two, I'm going to sprinkle in occasional sermons on the doctrine of the church. And my goal in these sermons is to help us re-envision what the local church is and does. My hope in these sermons is that Scripture will shape and reshape our understanding of who we are and what we're supposed to be doing as a local body of Christ. And there are at least three reasons, probably way more, at least three reasons, though, that a, that a pastor, a preacher, should regularly come back to teaching and preaching on the church. One is that 
being aware of what the Bible says about the church is vital. It's more important than most of us have probably imagined. It's critical that we know what God says about how, how congregational life should look. Healthy churches know what Scripture says about the nature and the function of the local church. A second reason, which is related to the first, is that the Bible says a whole lot about the doctrine of the church, more than most Christians are aware of, I believe. God has more to say about how the church should run than, than most of us think. And third, a healthy church is how the gospel is manifested on earth. The gospel is made visible to the world in the life of a thriving, well-functioning, Christ-centered congregation. A congregation that preaches the truth, that worships reverently, that gathers every Lord's Day, that prays regularly, not just on Sundays, that disciples one another, a congregation that corporately gives hands and feet to the love of Christ on earth, that practices hospitality, that shares the gospel with Unbelievers, outsiders, that admits believers to its membership, that excommunicates unrepentant sinners out of its membership, and that governs itself biblically. Whether a church is composed of two or three people, or two or three thousand people who gather together regularly in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Every congregation's God-given assignment is to reflect the glory and the character of God. And the New Testament has much to say about how a local body is to reflect God's glory and character in its activities and priorities through its ministries and outreach. And by the way, it's managed and run. Each sermon... In this indefinitely long series, we'll look at one particular aspect of the doctrine, of the biblical doctrine of the church. We won't cover everything all at once. I'm not even going to say everything about membership all at once today. There'll be a follow-up sermon. So we'll, we'll eat the elephant one bite at a time in an ongoing effort to keep our vision for the church clear and grounded in Scripture. And so my desire as well, I believe, is my duty uh, and my pleasure as this congregation's teaching pastor is to keep us increasingly anchored to the Bible's vision of a vibrant, healthy congregation. And so I want to help us uncover God's program for a faithful family of God. As we, as, as the text says from Ephesians 4, as we continue to grow in maturity, continue to grow in Christ in our maturity. And I, and I hope to convince you along the way that the scope of Scripture's vision for the local church is 
wider, and it includes more details than most of us thought. Today we'll be exploring the question of church membership. Is church membership taught in Scripture? Or is it just a convention of, moder- of, of the modern church? Uh, one of the things that, that Doug and Bobby and I do in our meetings is we maintain the list of Christ the King members, those who have formally committed themselves to this body. As the shepherds, we always want to know who the sheep are in our fold. But is this a scriptural practice or concern? Is it, a, is it good or necessary to do this sort of thing? Is it a biblical idea? Is church membership biblical? Well, some insist it's not. After all, if you comb the pages of the New Testament, you won't find any lists of church members. When Priscilla and Aquila moved to Rome, we don't, we don't hear about them you know, trying out this church and then a second church and then settling on a third church where they decided to join. Those who are opposed to formal church membership, and that, the number of those, uh, that number is increasing, those who are opposed to formal church membership, will say that the notion of keeping a role of members is really just something that, that the modern church is inclined to do, especially now that we've got the, the technology to set up databases and create spreadsheets and all that sort of thing on our computers. We can have lists of names. But, but keeping membership lists isn't, isn't a modern invention convention at all. Uh, it's, it's an ancient practice. Cities and nations have been doing it for millennia. In fact, we have biblical evidence that the New Testament churches kept lists. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul tells Timothy that certain widows who were 60 or older could be enrolled into a financial assistance program. These ladies could have their names put on a list of the widows who were supported by the church. So it won't do to assume that the early church wasn't interested in roles. They had pens and paper and ways of keeping records. They had an interest in doing so, and they kept lists, even lists of names. And we'll see as we uh, survey the scriptural evidence today that the congregations in the New Testament knew who was in and who was not. New Testament believers knew which local assembly they belonged to. And they knew who else belonged to that same assembly. Assembly. Each member knew who he was covenanted with, who he was accountable to and for, who he was called to live out the Christian life with or alongside, who he was becoming one with in a special way during the Lord's Supper each week. As Paul says, we become one body in that ritual. 
the shepherds of local congregations knew who they were responsible for feeding and tending and watching over. There was a process for coming in and a process for going out. And my intent today is to defend the notion that formal church membership is biblical, it's necessary, and it's spiritually beneficial. I'm not arguing that it's just a good idea. I'm making the case that membership in a local church is required by Scripture and important for your spiritual growth. And my target audience today is the members of Christ the King Church. My main purpose is to provide a biblical grounding and a biblical vision for your membership in this body. And of course, those who are not formally members of Christ the King Church are certainly welcome to, to listen in. And if, if you're not a member of a local church, I hope that this sermon will persuade you to diligently seek out membership somewhere in a Bible-believing, gospel-believing Christian church, whether it's this one or another one. But my main target here is the saints on the rolls of Christ the King Church. One of the main reasons people give for not joining a church is that they don't see membership in the New Testament. And even some churches, some congregations, don't have membership at all. You, you can't become a member because they don't see it in the New Testament either. That's an increasing uh, phenomenon. But if we look closely, we'll see church membership all over the place in the New Testament. And today we'll just begin that process of seeing it. For example, in the Corinthian church, there was a man living in sexual immorality of a kind, Paul says, that was not tolerated even among pagans, 1 Corinthians 5.1. And Paul's advice was to exclude this man from their assembly, from their membership. Here's what Paul writes to the Corinthian assembly in 1 Corinthians 5, 4 and 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, in other words, when you're formally assembled as a local church, uh, as they would have been while they were reading Paul's letter, when you're, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul's referring here, of course, to excommunication, the formal removal of a person from membership, which, by the way, wasn't something you'll notice that even the apostle Paul had the authority to do from afar. He didn't say he is excommunicated. I'm the bishop, I'm the apostle. He's excommunicated. The Corinthian church had to do it some sort of formal process he's referring to when they were assembled, gathered like this in the name of the Lord Jesus. But here's the point I want us to consider right now. Paul's recommending that this church remove a person from its, from its membership. Think about what that means. Can a local church formally remove a person from membership if that person has not first been formally added to the membership? Not really. 
if the Corinthian church had not been practicing church membership, Paul's instruction to purge the evildoer in 1 Corinthians 5 would not have made a lot of sense. It wouldn't have had a lot of teeth. If, if there's no means by which people are formally included in the church, there can be no way for people to be formally excluded. When a local assembly welcomes a person into its membership, the assembly publicly and formally affirms that this person this affirms this person's status as a disciple of Jesus. It says to the world that this person can legitimately be considered a Christian. When a local assembly excludes a person from its membership, the assembly publicly and formally removes that affirmation. It removes its affirmation that this, per, this person is a disciple of Jesus. It removes the affirmation of the person's status as a follower of Christ. It says to the world that this person can no longer legitimately be considered a Christian. Now, of course, we know that no local church is infallible, and every local church can possibly make a mistake and that only heaven's role-keeping is perfect and infallible. But it's still the job of the local church to affirm that this person is a Christian, a follower of Christ, or to remove that affirmation through the process of excommunication. An excommunicated person is removed from the roles, removed from the fellowship, removed from the Lord's Supper. The power of excommunication is the teeth that Jesus gives the local church. And he gives it the, those teeth in Matthew 18. Jesus says in Matthew 18, 17, If he, the unrepentant brother, hypothetical unrepentant brother, refuses to listen to them, the two or three witnesses from the church, then tell it to the church. In other words, tell it to the whole church not just the two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, he's no longer in. He's out. And Jesus assumes here that the unrepentant brother being excommunicated is in fact a member of the church that is excommunicating him. If the unrepentant brother is not a member of a church, then how could any church put him out? The scenario that Jesus envisions in Matthew 18 is one in which a man is confronted by his fellow members. Those are the two or three witnesses. And then by his entire church family in the process of removing him from the church role and the church life. Now, the scenario in Matthew 18 is hypothetical, but the situation that I referred to a few minutes ago in 1 Corinthians 5 involved real people. It wasn't hypothetical at all. There really was an unrepentant, immoral man who was sleeping with his stepmother. But did you know that there's a happy ending to that story? Paul almost certainly refers to this man 
in his second inspired letter to the Corinthian church in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. Paul says, quote, The punishment inflicted on this man by the majority was enough. 2 Corinthians 2, 7. The punishment inflicted on this man by the majority was enough. Paul's point is that the immoral man had repented of his sin. And Paul wants the Corinthian church to forgive him and comfort him and welcome him back into the fold. The excommunication had done its job, its intended work, which is to bring sinners to repentance. But the part that I want us to consider for a minute is what Paul tells the congregation there. The punishment inflicted on this man by the majority was enough. Think about the implications of that sentence. What majority is Paul talking about? The majority of who? For there to be a majority of a group of people, there must be a defined group of people. In other words, you wouldn't be able to tell what the majority of it is because it's not defined. Paul is saying that the majority of the Christian of the Corinthian congregation had agreed probably by taking a vote voting existed back then the majority of the assembly had agreed to punish this man by removing him from the church this means that there was a defined group of people known as the Corinthian church if they had a sign out front of where they worshiped place where they met as we do, it might have read Church of God in Corinth, which is word for word what Paul calls them in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, the Church of God in Corinth. There was a defined group of Christians known as the Church of God in Corinth. And between the writings of 1 Corinthians And 2 Corinthians, a majority of this identifiable group of people had determined that an unrepentant sinner should be excommunicated. And now, in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul is encouraging the same congregation to readmit this man back into fellowship. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. You can imagine how it might have been hard for these Corinthian Christians to just forgive such an egregious sin. But he was repentant, so Paul is saying, you must forgive him. Please forgive him. Paul wanted his churches to care about who was in and who was out. And the reason we should care is that Jesus cares. That's why he gives each church the authority to do the best that they humanly can in identifying who is a member and who should not be considered a member. After Jesus spoke to the issue of excommunication, In Matthew 18, 
he went on to say in verse 18, following the verse I just read earlier, truly I say to you, now he's speaking to his disciples, but to the church as a whole, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose or set free on earth shall be loosed in heaven or has been loosed in heaven and has been bound already in heaven. The binding and loosing has to do with admitting and removing members. And I said at the beginning that every church's God-given assignment is to reflect the glory and the character of God. Well, today's sermon is about the initial way that we accomplish this. It's about the first thing we do as a body to reflect God's glory and character. The very first thing Jesus says about the church, the very first thing the entire New Testament says about the church in Matthew 16 and again in Matthew 18, addresses the congregation's duty to keep earthly membership records that approximate as closely as possible the membership records kept in heaven. That's what Jesus says. The very first thing the New Testament teaches us about the church in Matthew 16 and again in Matthew 18 addresses the congregation's duty to keep earthly membership records that approximate as closely as possible the membership records kept in heaven. The name of every living person listed in the Lamb's Book of Life, should ideally be listed on the role of some gospel-preaching church. And I'm not saying that you have to have your name on the role of an earthly church before you can be written in the role of the Lamb's Book of Life. But the biblical vision is that everyone whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life will also have his name written in the role of a local church until the Lord brings that person to heaven or until he returns. Let's consider another passage where this idea is taught, this time from the book of Hebrews. Just one verse, Hebrews 13, verse 17. And this is, this is one of those verses that has, has a way of convicting both church leaders and those who are supposed to submit to church leaders alike. Listen as I read Hebrews thirteen seventeen from the ESV. <clears throat> Obey your leaders... And submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Did you notice who believers are supposed to submit to in that verse? Is Hebrews thirteen seventeen saying that all Christians everywhere are to submit to all church leaders everywhere? No, the text says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. 
Now, of course, there's a sense in which all of us, all believers, should respect all Christian leaders. But Hebrews 13, 17 is saying that believers are only commanded to obey and submit to those church leaders whom they have personally committed themselves to. In other words, a believer is to submit to the leaders of the particular church that he is a member of. He knows who his leaders are because he has formally committed to the church of which they are leaders. It's like the submission that a woman owes to her husband. 1 Peter 3.1 doesn't say that all wives are to submit to all husbands everywhere. No, Peter tells wives to be in submission specifically to your own husbands. In other words, a wife is to submit to the husband of the particular marriage that she is a member of. And she knows who her husband is because she has formally committed to the marriage of which he is the husband. Likewise, a believer is to submit to the leaders of the particular church that he is a member of. And he knows who his leaders are because he has formally committed to the church of which they are the appointed leaders. Hebrews 13, 17 also looks at the leader-follower relationship from the perspective of the leader, the shepherd. Who are church leaders responsible for? Who are they to watch over? Is, Is Hebrews 13, 17 saying that all church leaders are to keep watch over all Christians everywhere? Will all church leaders have to give an account for all Believers everywhere. No, of course not. Church leaders watch over the souls of those in their care. Shepherds will only have to give an account for the sheep who have been in their congregation. Bobby Jameson wrote a helpful little booklet called Committing to One Another. The subtitle is Church Membership. And in that booklet, Jameson puts it this way. Quote, if you wander into a church once in a while, aren't accountable to the church, and never commit yourself to the church, it would be quite a stretch to say that the church's leaders are watching over you. How are church leaders to know whom they are to give an account for? They are to give an account for those they watch over. That is, those who have committed to their oversight and entrusted themselves to their spiritual care through church membership. End quote. The church or churches to whom... Hebrews was written, apparently practiced church membership. The author expected the leaders to be able to identify by name those specific souls whom they were watching over. And he expected the church members to be able to identify by name those specific leaders whom they should obey and submit to. Perhaps the most obvious passage in defense of church membership is 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul explicitly says that believers in the Corinthian church were members of the local, that local body. And, and you might be tempted to think, well, no, he's just talking about members of the universal, the, the Catholic church, the, the universal church. But Paul is giving very practical 
theology and advice about how these Corinthians should live together in their local body. There were problems in this local body. They weren't waiting on each other when they should. There was, there was division in this local body. And Paul is writing to tell them not how they relate to people that they have never met outside of Corinth, but how they are to relate to one another in this local body. And so he says, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. I'm just reading from different passages and verses in 1 Corinthians 12. As he chose. There are many members, yet one body. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. By my count, the word member or members occurs no less than 13 times in 1 Corinthians 12 alone. It's important that you see yourself as a member of a body of Christ that regularly gathers in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 5. Now that we've surveyed some of the New Testament texts that speak to church membership, it might be helpful at this point to, to sort of gather it all together, um, including passages we haven't talked about, into a, a definition of church membership that seeks to summarize the biblical data. Uh, so, so what is church membership? Here's, here's a working definition that I came up with, and, and I'll be assuming this, maybe even tweaking it, but not much, assuming this throughout this, these sermons on the church. Church membership is a covenant or formal agreement between a local church and an individual Christian in which both the church and the individual Christian make commitments to each other. The church's commitment to the individual Christian is to publicly affirm the Christian status as a disciple of Jesus and to spur that Christian on to love and good works. The Christian's commitment to the church is to attend its assemblies, to submit to its decisions, and to participate in its ministries to members and outsiders. Let me say that again. Church membership is a covenant or a formal agreement between a local church and an individual Christian in which both the church and the individual Christian make commitments to each other. The church's commitment to the individual Christian is to publicly affirm that Christian status as a disciple of Jesus and to spur the Christian on to love and good works. The Christian's commitment to the church is to attend its assemblies, to submit to its decisions, its government, and to participate in its ministries to members and to outsiders. There's a book that I'd like all of us to read uh, in the coming months. Maybe make it a goal to read it in the next six months. It's, it's not a very long book, um, it's by Jonathan Lehman, and the title is Church Membership. And I, I ordered, uh, here's a copy of it, um, 
church membership, how the world knows who represents Jesus. It's, it's a really good, short, concise uh, introduction to the doctrine of church membership in the Bible. Um, and I ordered, I ordered several copies. I don't know how many. They're not here yet. They should be here this week. And I'll put them on the back table when they come in. And you can grab one, read it, um, and maybe share it with somebody else. We, we can buy more copies. I think I, I ordered 10 or 15. And I know actually one or two of you have already read it um, and have benefited from it. And Lehman, in one place in the book, he gives several reasons that membership matters. And I'm going to conclude by just summarizing 10 of those reasons, which summarize a lot of what we talked about, maybe add another point or two. Number one, church membership is biblical. Jesus established the local church. And all the apostles did their ministry through the local church. The Christian life in the New Testament cannot be separated from church life. Number two, the church is its members. The church is its members. In the first part of the book of Acts, when people in Jerusalem are getting saved, they were simultaneously added to the role of the Jerusalem church. And if you, if you remember, in early Acts, we're even provided with a running total of the number of members in the Jerusalem church. Somebody was keeping track. That's a lot of names, too. There were uh, 3,000, and then it got up to 5,000. The church is its members. Number three, church membership is how you officially represent Jesus. Membership is the local church's affirmation that you are a citizen of Christ's kingdom. The local church is where you, ideally, will get baptized. And because you're a member of Christ's body, you are an official representative of Jesus before the nations. Being a Christian is not just an individual affair. You are put on a team, in a body, and you want that representation to the world to be authorized. Number four, church membership is how you publicly declare your highest allegiance. Your membership on a particular team is a public testimony that your highest allegiance belongs to Jesus, the head of the church. Number five, church membership is how you serve other Christians. Membership helps you to know which Christians on planet Earth you are specifically or specially accountable to and for. Which believers you are specifically responsible to, to love, to serve, to encourage, to build up, to admonish, and to spur on to love and good works. Membership enables you to fulfill your biblical duties to Christ's body. The duties, for example, that are outlined in that opening passage I read from Ephesians 4. Membership gives you a defined, concrete context in which you can start, at least, to put into practice all of the one-anothering passages in the New Testament. 
Number six, church membership is how you obey Christian leaders. Membership helps you to know which Christian leaders on planet earth you are called to submit to and follow. Number seven, church membership helps Christian leaders lead. Membership lets Christian leaders know which souls on planet earth they keep watch over and which ones they will give an account for. Number eight, church membership enables church discipline. Your membership allows you to be disciplined if necessary. Your membership also provides a biblically prescribed place for you to participate in the work of church discipline and to do so in a responsible, wise, and loving way. If you're not a member of a church, you don't even have the possibility of being among what Paul calls the majority that decides on things like church discipline. Can you be numbered? Is it possible for you to be numbered in the majority? Number nine, church membership gives structure to your Christian life. Membership places your your confession, your claim to be a follower of Jesus into a real-life setting where authority is actually exercised over you. In other words, church membership is the hub of God's disciplining program, discipleship program. Finally, number 10, church membership builds a corporate witness and it invites the nations in. Membership puts the reign of Christ on display for a watching world. Remember at that Corinthian congregation, if you read on in 1 Corinthians, Paul notes that there were outsiders and unbelievers even in their worship services. Of course, that's not the full extent of how we as a body manifest the gospel to a watching world, but it can start even in our Lord's Day gatherings. Paul says in Ephesians 3.10 that it's through the church, that's Paul's words, through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known even to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Wow, that, that's through us, through the assembly, through the body. The very boundaries that are drawn around the membership of a church produce a society of redeemed people that invites believers to come in. It invites unbelievers, if I said believers, I meant unbelievers, to something better. In other words, church membership is God's evangelism program. Every Christian should individually reflect the glory and character of the crucified and risen Lord. That's, that's what each of you, each of us here should be doing in our lives when we're not assembled, when we're not with the body, when we're at work, when we're shopping, when we're driving. 
And every Christian should be a member of a church that corporately reflects the glory and character of the crucified and risen Lord. Every Christian should be a member of a church that corporately reflects the glory and the character of the crucified and risen Lord. So, members of Christ the King Church, let's endeavor in the coming months, years, let's endeavor to lift high the cross and to make visible the gospel of Jesus Christ in our life together as a local body. Let's, let's seek to be spiritual in our fellowship, God-honoring in our ministries, and biblical in our vision. As the lead teacher of this particular congregation, I commit to helping us do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus who died for his bride, who died for the church, who died for us. Lord, help us to be faithful members of Christ and faithful members of this local congregation to do what you've called us to do in the word and to do specifically what you are calling us to do in this setting, in this town, at this time in history. We pray that you would knit us together and that we, by your spirit, by your grace, would be knit together, that we would work together to build up this body more and more into a mature person, a mature congregation. We need your help in doing this, and so accomplish it through us by the Holy Spirit that lives in us, the Spirit that you sent to the church at Pentecost. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.